Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. I'm Jonathan Lee. And we are very excited to welcome to Democracy-ish uh, Adrian Walker, who is a columnist and associate editor at the Boston Globe, um, whose story, um, A Murder in Boston, uh, goes back to 1989 into the present day. I'll just say before Waj gives his uh, opening, um, wow, like what a extraordinarily heartbreaking, um, excruciating story, uh, Adrian. So thank you so much for, for, for joining us to talk about, for, to talk about it today. Um, and I'll oh, turn it to you, Waj. <laughs> I just take this uh, opportunity to be immature and do my movie phone voice, and Danielle indulges me. I do. Um, so just give me 20 seconds. Adrian Walker writes a twice-weekly column focusing on politics and local news for the Boston Globe Metro section. He was a member of the Globe Spotlight team that was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for local reporting in 2018 for the series Boston Race Image reality and as mentioned he is the host of murder in boston podcast which is a boston globe and hbo documentary co-production over three episodes that talks about the infamous 1989 murder in boston that still has resonance today i hope i I hope that was good adrian Uh, you can use that uh, for for your future uh in the linkedin profile uh you know speaking about this amazing documentary and series uh it's so I'll set it up. I'm going to throw it to you, uh, right? 1989, Boston, crack, adem- crack epidemic is raging. Uh, white flight. There's, there's a, a white couple known as the Camelot couple by the media. We'll get into that. Charles Stewart and his pregnant wife, Carol, who are allegedly carjacked. Uh, they're, they're in the Kuncote inner city. Uh, and Charles makes a frantic call to the 911 that my pregnant wife was shot by a black man in a striped suit and then all hell breaks loose take it away why should we care about this story from 1989 in 2024 yeah what was interesting about the story to me i mean i covered it when it happened and you know what was interesting about the story is the aftermath of it 
what you didn't mention was that the story Stuart told 911 was made up. Hmm. He actually was the person who shot and killed his wife, an hmm. unborn child, and blamed it on a black man. And and there was never a black man involved. And then the uh, entire story unraveled in this very dramatic way. And so we tell it in a few uh, different venues. It, there was there was a series in the Globe for eight days. There's a three part HBO documentary you referenced, and also a nine part podcast which I hosted, which is also called Murder in Boston. You know, I think that what is so striking um, to me is that not having known anything about the story until you, we were, you know, you were we were preparing for for you to come on. Um, not having remembered, and I was, you know, probably very young uh, when when it happened. Um, immediately for me, I'm just like, oh, he probably shot his wife. <laughs> like, not even like, not like I'm 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 listening, you know, I'm I'm listening to the pod, and I'm you know, and I'm reading the articles, and it never it like it occurred to me instantly, and I'm just wondering for you. Talk to us about the racial element and this city of Boston, which I have always known from people inside of Boston, black people and white people to be like this hotbed of racism. I live in New York City, and yet I consider Boston to be a hotbed of racism. So talk to us about why Charles's narrative, the lie that he told, was able to take such flight instantly. Well, okay, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to back up for a second before I get to that and say that I think this all happened a little bit before cable television had taught all of America that the husband always did it. Okay. I think that automatic <laughs> assumption was not quite as deeply ingrained in everybody 34, 35 years ago as it is now, thanks to Nancy Grace and others. Mm. So I think it was in a slightly different environment to begin with. Uh, but there's no question that, you know, his story sold instantly. It sold instantly to a lot of people, specifically a lot of white people, who could very easily see this idea of, you know, a black man jumping in the car and shooting this woman. I mean, the story makes no sense if you think about it, for all kinds of reasons. But it played into things people were absolutely prepared to believe. Now, whether that's true or in Boston, than it is in St. Louis is a subject is something I might debate you on mm-hmm, on another mm-hmm. day. But, you know, this could happen in other places and things like this have, have in fact happened in other places, but no doubt about it. I mean, it sold right away. And, you know, I was just thinking about how it's so current because right before we started recording just today, there was this two news stories, uh, nothing to do with murder. But uh, the commentary about how when it's a black suspect or a person of color, the story changes. And so very quickly, speaking about my warriors, and, and I don't want to make you vomit in your mouth, Adrian. I know you're a, a Boston Celtics fan. I, I apologize for that. But, you know, there was a commentary today on First Take where uh, the hosts were talking about why Draymond Green specifically his on-court antics, right? The narrative surrounding that would be different if he were white. Uh, it was an interesting conversation. The second one is this New York Times article about Fonnie Willis, the uh, the as you know, the prosecutor in the Georgia case. And specifically, black women were saying, if you're black in this in these positions of power, you have to be perfect. 
uh, you do, are not afforded the grace uh, of a white person in this particular uh, uh, you know, institution. You have to be clean. You have to be just on the top of your game all the time. And then also speaking about how this has happened before, we have to look at the exonerated five where, uh, you know, the woman says it's sure. these five black men and the, and the country runs with it. Donald Trump, who became president, takes out an ad to this day, refuses to apologize, even though DNA exonerated these folks. And so, you know, speaking about that racial element that was exploited, talk to us about how the media at that time, and this is pre OJ Simpson, mm-hmm. right? This is mm-hmm. pre, like you said, cable news that really sensationalized it. But nonetheless, the roots are there. And they 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 said black men in, in pinstripe suits are literally like any man any black man from like age of like 14 to like 65 becomes a suspect meanwhile this 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 now that we think oh it's totally the dude it's totally the husband they call them the camelot couple talk mm-hmm. to us about the media framing whoa, of whoa, 89 whoa, whoa, whoa. they did not call them the camelot couple the boston herald called them the camelot okay couple, okay okay, which okay. Is something we're kind of insisted of insistent about over here at the boston globe where we never use the term. But, you know, I'm really glad that you mentioned the exonerated five. And it's a great parallel because it belongs to that same era, right? That was 1988. This was 1989. It's this period where white people are freaking out about the crack epidemic. They're freaking out about, quote unquote, inner city crime and how dangerous it all is. I mean, in the case of the Central Park thing, it wasn't even the woman who said it. She was knocked out and always said she didn't know Mm. what happened to her. It was other people who, you know, led the mob against him, including, as you rightly point out, Donald Trump. So, you know, it was what the point I'm making is that it was it happened in this era where, you know, this story was really something people were prepared to believe because it tapped into so many racist preconceived notions. What do you think, Adrian, you know, again, as we're looking at this 30 some odd years later, And what I appreciate about the documentary and the pod is that it is now looking at it through the vantage point of the absolute chaos and disruption that it caused um, the Black community in Boston, right? That then became um, a target of what I will call um, police terror, right? Where you're talking about um, at, at, I, I think in, w- in one article that I read, at one point, it was a hu- 150 black men are being stopped and frisked, you know, a week, right? Um, and so I, I want to get your, your thoughts on why it was so important, this story had been told, why it was so important to tell it through the vantage point of the black community after the white community had um, decided it was time to kind of move on. It was important for exactly the reason you say it. It was important because this was a part of the story that had never been told uh, properly. These were the people we had never heard from nearly enough. And, you know, as a person who has lived with the story for 30 years, I mean, the thing that always struck me, you know, is I'd be talking to somebody like Ron Bell, who ran the community center in Mission Hill in the middle of this, or his cousin Tito Jackson, who was stripped you know, strip searched in the middle of Tremont Street. And the way people live with it in, in this visceral way, the way it never let people go was something that was so powerful to me. And, you know, and that's not in, I mean, we did stories in Mission Hill in 1989. We didn't ignore it, but we did not do what I wish we had done. And one of the things I'm most proud of is that we went back and that those voices are really front and center in our reporting now. 
you know, and and, and the, what the stories that are not, um, if you will, uh, highlighted, uh, the ones that don't get the spotlight, are oftentimes as we as we've seen even to this day, the ones that are marginalized, the ones that are poor, the ones that are low income, especially African American communities. But for those who who don't know about the history of Boston specifically in race relations or racial tensions, can you take us back to 1974? And, and what happened in Boston with desegregation that, that kind of, if you will, created this climate that was rife for both brutality and exploitation? Well, yes, I can. In 1974, a federal judge ordered the Boston public schools to desegregate. This was the end of a decade-plus-long fight on the part of Black parents to try to win some educational equity. And the plan was for black students to get bused into predominantly white and Irish South Boston and for white students to get bused into black neighborhoods like Roxbury. And the city immediately exploded, and particularly South Boston exploded. I mean, school buses with black kids on them were rocked. There was all kinds of violence. And this violence, the racial violence that it set off in, persisted for years and years. You know, it went well into the 80s. And, uh, you know, I've referred to it in the paper as Boston Civil War. It's just, it's a real stain on the city. And it really cemented Boston's reputation for racial intolerance. And it really is sort of the prologue to Stuart. What I think is also really interesting, and I, and I, and this is something that, um, was brought up in an article that was done on, on, on the docuseries is that there has been, so like several movies, right, where the focus and kind of one of the protagonists has been Boston and like this white, tough guy kind of, you know, appeal. So whether it's, uh, you know, uh, what is it, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck uh, in, in several movies that they that they have done um, or others. There departed. is departed. There is this like, I don't know what you call it white tough guy nostalgia or fairy tale that 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 hollywood has created around the city what do, what do you make of that in relationship to the reality that you just spoke of that has that had stamped this city in a way for racial intolerance well i mean obviously it's really distorted because it ignores half the city more than half of the city yeah and there is this sort of romantic idea of Boston and the gang, the gangs and Whitey Bulger, who was this big gangster and all of that. I mean, the character Jack Nicholson plays in The Departed is essentially Whitey uh, without the Boston accent. And uh, and yeah, there's been this huge romanticism of, you know, the Irish gangs, the Italian mob and so on. And it, you know, much of the city's detriment. And it, it completely ignores, you know, the experience so many black people have had in this city. Kind of drives me crazy that that's what people think of as Boston, because there's so much more of Boston. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and mm-hmm. Daniel makes a good point. When I was there in Boston uh, last year, was a, a book fair, and there was a, a black author who says, "I grew up in the city. You know, I'm as Boston as anyone else." But when they think of Boston, they think exactly what you said: Matt Damon, Mark Wahlberg, The Departed, Irish cops. And he says, "You know, let me tell you my story. I, you know, I love the Celtics. I'm a Bostonian, but at the same time, I could tell you stories where I had to duck out of certain neighborhoods because I'm black." Right. So Boston, even now for some black folks, has always been this way where like uh, we're here, we're Bostonian, we cheer for the sports. But uh, a part of the city says you don't belong. You're not part of the narrative. And and, I mean, look, when I moved here in 1989, I was told, don't go to South Boston. Don't go to Charlestown. 
Hyde Park is iffy. And, mm. you know, coming from Miami, where I'd grown up, the idea that there were whole parts of the city that I wasn't supposed to set foot in was just mind-boggling. And it was true in Boston for a long time. I mean, you mentioned busing. There were, you know, there were a handful of black families in places like South Boston and Charlestown when busing started. They all had to bail. And I mean, and there weren't any black residents again for 20 years. I mean, that's that's part of Boston's history. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that forced David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. Healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country. Immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun. And candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. You know, and, and so it's it's a thing where I see, which is, sadly, we're talking about the story that took place in 1989. We're talking about the exonerated five again, 80s in New York. I'm, I'm old enough to remember the atrocious Willie Horton campaign um, that sunk Michael Dukakis's pretty much his presidential campaign, right? Like it, it got uh, the elder Bush elected. And for those who you who are youngins, go back and check it out. It was a deliberately race baiting terrible like just just terrible ad that preyed on white fear that there's a released black criminal and once he was released he committed more crimes uh and specifically michael dukakis will be won't be tough on crime now i say this in the context of the upcoming 2024 election where if you all have been paying attention inner city crime migrants right and tucker carlson just said that ah compared to these other cities moscow is the safest city. It's safer. I mean, that's his city. So. I, mean, I mean, yeah. And so it's. It, I, I see Adrian like a repeat, maybe not just a repeat, not even a remake, like a reboot. It's the reboot of the same narrative again and again. Invaders, criminals, rapists, Muslims, black threat, inner city. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, we have the history. We see the damage that is done to communities in Boston, in New York. Why don't we learn? That's a great question. And I mean, it's one of the reasons really I wanted to do this, do this story, you know, because we bury this history and we need to stop burying it. We need to come with 
come and confront it and, you know, and live with it. And you're right. I mean, you know, you do see a lot of parallels here. You do see those same notes getting struck again. You see it in the migrant debate, right? I mean, they're up in arms about migrants in places that don't even have any migrants. Mm -hmm. I mean, I watch people in New Hampshire who are like crazed about migrants. And I'm like, what migrants? There's no migrants in Nashville in New Hampshire. Like none. Why do you care? But that that whole idea of demonizing other people, I mean, it's just, it's baked into this country. It really is. Adrian, how do you think, you know, we, we, you, you address the fact that during the time that this story was unfolding, that cable news was not a thing, social media was not a thing. Now it is very much a part of our day-to-day lives. How do you think that these kinds of stories, which continue to still happen, unfortunately, how social media, does it, does it help us in bringing a different light because people have access to places where only three news stations would give them access in, you know, in the late eighties and the nineties, does it, does it aid, I guess, in the kind of catch fire that took place with this story that everyone ran with it? Or like, how do you think that in today, 30 years later, these kinds of stories play out or would play out? I think it would play out differently now because of social media. And the difference, I think, I think the people saying, the, the skeptics, the people saying, I'm not sure the story makes sense. Why were they there in the first place? All that kind of stuff. They would have a, they would have a place to go now, you know? They, they mm. have megaphones now. They have podcasts now, for example. And I think, you know, so I think in that sense, it would play out a lot differently. At least I'd like to think so. Yeah, but I also am thinking about, and maybe this is me being the cynic, uh, with social media and a, as we have seen the violence against black folks, uh, you know, that Marine who choked out that man on the subway killed him. Uh, and we yeah. see uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, who it was at a BLM uh uh, protest, but he killed and shot two white folks and is seen as the hero. I'm wondering whether or not if this murderer played his tune, if you will, to right wing media, they would run with the uh, Camelot couple. Uh, you know, it's very interesting. Like I see the parallels. Uh, and, and I also do want to focus on this fact because I don't want to give a spoiler. I mean, spoiler alert, but there was real damage. Like they arrested the wrong guy. Can you tell us about the, the the family that got destroyed, the community that got actually destroyed as a result of this media sensationalization? Yeah, and, and, and you're right. I mean, I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna here. God knows we all know social media is a giant mixed bag. Uh, but to your question, you know, there were two black men who were ultimately named publicly as suspects, uh, Alan Swanson and later Willie Bennett. And uh, yeah, and I mean, they were dragged through the mud. They ultimately weren't charged with the crime um, because there was no evidence against them whatsoever. But it did a tremendous amount of damage to them and to their families and to the neighborhood around. Them. Absolutely. You know, I, I I also, you know, one of the things that are highlighted too um is the mayor's actions in the in in the beginning. Forgive me because I can't remember the name. Rafelin. Rafe, okay. So he is being, you know, he's being told, you know, why don't you slow down a bit? Right. In the way that you're that you're like hitting the ground running, you know, just following what this man is saying, what Charles is saying, that doesn't make sense. It's not adding up. And like if you pause for a second and he refused, can you talk to us about like 
the politics of that moment. Like you have, you know, from the president on down talking about this war on drugs, talking about this war in the urban cities. And is it the pressure that the mayor is feeling like I got to, I got to act. So it doesn't matter like whether or not I have all the facts because I just have to act so that I don't look weak. Like what is in your mind in throughout this investigation, what is coming into play for him? I think that in the in the heat of the moment, it seemed like such a shocking crime. He felt that, you know, they had to get somebody arrested right away. They had to solve this murder right away. He's He holds a press conference the night of the shooting outside the hospital where Carol Stewart is being treated and says, you know, we're going to assign every single available detective in this case. And the interesting thing about that is, you know, this is a time when a lot of people are getting shot in Boston. Murders are not uncommon, and nobody was typically holding press conferences saying, we're putting everybody we got on this one, you know? So right from the beginning, it was treated as this extraordinary thing. It really fed the hysteria, and I think he had no control, which he should have had, over what the police department was doing or didn't exercise any control, let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. And by the way, mm-hmm. I, I sought to interview Mir Flynn, of course, for the piece, and uh, he declined to talk about it. He's, you know, he's 84 now and mm. has basically stopped doing interviews. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. It's 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 one of the situations where we where we've talked about the power, the detriment and power of social media, uh, of where we are now, where you have podcasts and you know people, especially when it comes to true crime. I mean, it is it is a phenomenon. <laughs> you want to make money, you go into true crime, right? But we've also seen with the Innocence Project, uh, with people unearthing evidence. You know, you've seen exoneration and accountability. You see the exonerated five. I mean. I mean, is there any, you know, recompensation for what they've lost? You know, one can't say because they lost so much, but at the same time, they're exonerated. They got some money, you know, they have an opportunity at life. What has been any form of accountability or restorative justice mm. uh, to those two men who were first and foremost falsely arrested and also to the community, Adrian, that really suffered, the black community? Well, our current mayor, Michelle Wu, held a press conference or held an event where she publicly apologized to Alan Swanson and Willie Bennett. Uh, Swanson was there. Bennett's family was there. She apologized to the entire black community. She said what happened here was racist and horrible and wrong. And that was important because those were things no mayor had said in the 34 years since this happened. Now, you know, immediately, and I mean, in that same event, you know, there were people saying, well, you know, the next thing that ha- should happen is that they should get paid. I don't know if any of that's going to happen. I just don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that acknowledgement, and I obviously that is the point of what 
your story reflects now is giving the microphone and the attention to the people that were harmed, right? Um, to the people who the story initially overlooked um, and were the real, you know, truly uh, also the victims of a heinous, heinous crime. You know, this this man makes this accusation because of racism, makes this accusation. Right. Not He could have said, some guy, some young white kid, you know, ran at my car. Like he could have, he could have chosen anybody. Right. Yes. But he didn't. And then when the police pull up a man who it is not him, he could have been like, Oh, I don't recognize him. That's not the guy. Instead. He said, no, that's the guy. Right. And, right. and so I just, you know, what are your, you know, last question for you, what are your hopes, you know, that people take, from this documentary, from the from the podcast series um, about, I guess, rushes to judgment and and how we handle how we think about um, these types of race based cases going forward. I mean, my, my biggest hope is simply that it will make everybody slow down and think about how we think about these kinds of events. And, it, and that also will make people think about the way we try to bury this stuff, you know, there was this whole rush to move on. Let's forget about it. You know, and as black people, we hear this all the time, you know, let's, ju let's just move on and, you know, learn the lessons and go on to the next thing. But there, for the people who live this, there is no going on to the next, thing, you know, and we need some real reconciliation, which is something we never had around Stuart case. And if, if this can prompt some of that in here in Boston, I'll be happy. I'll, I'll feel like we did our work. Can I yeah. ask a really quick follow-up? Speaking about reconciliation, uh, some of the police officers, even after all of this, still still refuse to concede mm -hmm. that uh, they got the wrong person, right? Yes. Yeah, there are people in law enforcement, you know, they're retired now, but people who were in law enforcement who to this day say, I think Willie Bennett was involved somehow. But then you ask him, well, how was he involved? I mean, Willie Bennett was never connected to the crime in any way. He Never met Chuck Stewart. There's nothing, nothing, nothing connecting him to this. But they say, oh, I still think he was connected somehow. And he'd say, well, what do you mean? And they can't answer the question because it's all nonsense. It's, it's right. utterly delusional. But, but to this day, they can't admit that they were wrong. That's what that's about. Right. They can't admit that they got it. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for this 30-year storytelling um, that is like, that is ex extraordinary. I try and, not to do the math here. <laughs> <laughs> um, for bringing it to light for, for, for all of us. I, it's, it's incredibly important. And I, I hope that it does lead to some type of much needed, uh, reconciliation, but, um, we really appreciate you joining democracy ish. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to democracy ish. I'm Danielle Moody. I'm Wajahat Ali. And we will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah.